you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Seraiah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitab, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Merioth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the chief priest, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord, his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Good morning, everyone. Ah, oh, that's good. I was worried I was going to have that crackle that we just heard in the sound, but it's good. And uh, good morning if you're at home today. Great to see you. Before I start, I just want to call out a couple of things. Number one, Dom, thank you for you and your team, the way that you lead us in music. And uh, yeah, it's, it's just good. I, I, I really feel like at this point I can just sit down and say, let's just keep rocking with this today. Just praising God, and we continue to praise God now in a different way, but thank you, brother. Um, and over here, I can see Kev and Di. Uh, we spoke about the Alpha. Thank you, Josh, for mentioning that. Um, really, these guys are leading that and are doing an absolutely fantastic job. I hear from a number of people saying, I think this is, think this is true of our church, actually. It's probably the most... I don't want to use the word successful too lightly, but the most encouraging Alpha course, perhaps, in the history of our church. Uh, it's not the largest... But it is one where, by the sounds of it, there's some of the best engagement that we've ever seen. Like a whole bunch of people that are not yet, um, have not yet discovered who Jesus is, but are in that process. So appreciate you guys. Thank you uh, very much for the way that you are doing that. Yeah, give them a, give them a hand. And because that's who we are as a church. We're, we're a family. We're a body. Um, we're not just a few sort of... Uh, paid professionals that roll up the front and just rock, run the show. That's not how we work. That's not who the Church of God is. Um, we're a family, and I just love to see people serving in that way. And, and of course, there's a ton. once you start calling people out, it's a dangerous slope, but I've called two people out, and before I get any more trouble, let's pray. Uh, Father, we come to your word now. We thank you for it. We thank you for uh, the wonderful way you work in our church. We thank you for the wonderful way that you uh, work in our world, even when we can't see it. And so as we come now, we pray that, that that power which is revealed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, 
That power will be evident as your word is opened and we look together now at this book, the book of Ezra. And we pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, today, we've been studying the book of Ezra, but we haven't met him. Today, we meet him. It's taken seven chapters, but here he is. Ezra, who the book is named after. What do we know about Ezra? Uh, We don't know what he looked like. Um, We don't know how old he was, actually, either. We know um, from these first chapters, or from these these verses today, that he was a scribe. Uh, That was someone who was uh, recording the Word of God, making sure it was correctly transmitted and and correctly explained. He was a priest. So we know that he was a man who was uh, called by God to to, um, um, mediate the presence of God before the people in that Old Testament sense, and and to lead them in worship. And we know a few other things as well. We know that he was a very big deal in the standing of, of the people of God of Israel. Now, how do we know he's a very big deal? Because add that, if you heard that reading, the first five, five verses are son of son of son, son of son of son. And we, we tend to just tend to zone out. But those first five verses give Ezra's genealogy all the way back to Aaron. Uh, a thousand years before Moses' brother. Ezra's a big deal. In fact, um, he's not just a, a big deal in the Jewish people um, historically. Many scholars today, many uh, the Jewish people themselves, would say that he is the second most influential person in the entire Old Testament. You go, wow, that's a big call after Moses. So what about David and Abraham? Well, a lot of, a lot of people say that he actually had a, a bigger influence on the people of God than anybody else except Moses, and no one, including Moses, did more than this man Ezra to define the people of God, the Jewish people in the Old Testament, as, and, the, and right through the New Testament as well, as the people of the book. So, so this is Ezra, the one we meet today, but, but I think those things are dwarfed uh, in comparison to the fact that it is very clear that Ezra was a big deal in God's estimation. Now you say, how do you know that? How do you know that Ezra was a big deal? Well, we know it because six times in chapter 7 and 8, there's a refrain, and it echoes like a, a Holy Spirit song through this, these two chapters. And the refrain is this. Does anyone know what it was? Did anyone hear it? Uh, we, God is good. That is true all the time. God is good. No, it, actually, the refrain that echoes is, the hand of God was on this man. And we'd have to read through those two chapters, I think, to probably really pick it up. But six times, the hand of God is on Ezra. Now, it's a ringing refrain. What does it mean? The hand of God is on someone. Uh, well, Peter Adam um, notes in his commentary, he says this, he says, the hand of God in the Bible means God's active work in the world especially in salvation and rescue. So God's active work in the world, the hand of God for salvation and rescue, rests on this man Ezra in a wonderful way. Six times the hand of God rests on him. Now, think about this for a moment. Um, What is the goal for your life? What do you really want to see in your life? What is what is the end point of your life which you reached it, you would say, goal fulfilled? What is it? Well, tons of goals in, we might have here and in our world today, isn't there? I, I want to get to the end of my life and have a really good superannuation balance. I, 
I want to get to my life and finally get that home reno done, which has been dragging on for centuries. Um, I want to, I, I don't know, I want a lovely family. I want to have had a really successful career, something I've really enjoyed. Maybe I want to make a contribution to society. I want to make the world a better place. Now, all of those things I've mentioned are good things in their own way. But if they're the goal of your life, if you go, you know why I'm here on planet Earth? Because I want to get the Renault done, and I want to get to the career position, and I want to make, even make the world a better place. That's meaningless in the big picture, people. There's going to come a day when the siren sounds and we walk off the field and the Bible says in that moment that our works will be tested by fire. Talking to Christian people, the way that you lived your life, the things that you did, what your goals were, will be tested by fire. And in the Scriptures in the New Testament, it says you want to endure that testing by fire. You want the things that you built your life on, the goals that you had, to stand when the fire has passed over them and and go with you, if you like, into eternity. And the scriptures say that, that for, for many of us, uh, our works, our goals, our aspirations will be put under the fire and we'll make it through into eternity, but it says with the smell of fire still on our clothes. Make it through just everything that we build our life on, perhaps. And this is to Christian people, burned up, gone. You know, what is the goal of your life? I tell you what the goal of your life should be, and that goal of, of your life should be, must be, cannot be anything else but be the hand of God was on you. You live your life for that goal, that God's work in salvation and redemption was working through you in this life. The hand of God was on you. Then when you go into eternity, you will carry with you a reward that will endure. Now, don't you want the hand of God on you? How can you not want it on you? How can those other things compare to having God's hand, the creator of God, on you? in your life right now and for all eternity. Well, you say, what's that got to do with Ezra? The hand of God was on Ezra. And we see in these two little chapters that we're going to look at today, we're going to look at mostly chapter 7, a bit of chapter 8 as well. We're going to see some things that give us some indications of why the hand of God was on Ezra. Not just that it was on him, but Why? And we're going to look this morning at three things in particular. We're going to see that Ezra is captivated by God's Word. Ezra is confident in God's power. And Ezra is committed to God's discipline. So he's captivated by God's Word. He's confident in God's power. He's committed to God's discipline. Let's look at these. Firstly, Ezra is captivated by God's Word. Uh, we heard that read just a sec. Let's go back to verses 3 and 4. For the good hand of his God was on him. Why? For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Ezra's captivated by God's word. He, it says he sets his heart. He commits his life purpose to, I want to be captivated by the, God, the word of God. I'm going to study it. And what does it mean to study the word of God? Well, what does it mean to study anything? Um, we've got people in this church who've studied to be vets or to be doctors or to be builders. Or, or there are people in our church right now who are studying towards VCE exams. They're studying English texts. They're studying other things. They're studying maths. When you study something, we know what it is, isn't it? We, we diligently devote ourselves to learning things about it that we didn't know before, whether that's 
your, your workday thing that you're training for, perhaps, or that you did train for, or whether it's the Scriptures. It's the same thing. It's, a, it's an intentional diligence to learn. And when we study Scripture, we go to the Bible as Ezra did. We're captivated by God's Word. We recognize that we don't know the half of it. And I can say that for myself. Bible college is not going to solve your, you're not going to suddenly, you know God's word and you don't have to worry about it ever again. It's, it's a lifelong commitment to learning about God from his word, to opening that, to, to probing it, to asking questions, to, to asking others, to like, like in, a, in a tute group, we used to be called at uni or whatever, you, 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 that's what a, often our gospel communities are. Let's together look at this and study it. So what are you doing right now, I hope? One of the reasons that you came to worship with God's people is because you're captivated by God's Word. You want to hear Him in it. You want to learn about Him. Now, does that describe you? Are you captivated by God's Word? I think for me, sometimes yes, sometimes no. You know, sometimes I'm captivated by God's Word. I can't wait to get into it. Other times, it's like, oh... I'm struggling to stay awake right now. I want to study, but, it, but I feel tired. Isn't that true of our experience? But we're captivated. And if we're captivated by God's Word, we see that knowledge grow over time. Uh, who knows a bloke called Kirby Lancaster here? <laughs> yeah, a couple of us do. Uh, Kerbs was the, uh, the, the, the pastor at um, South Valley uh, Baptist for years and years and years. Uh, he's still around Geelong. He works as a chaplain in, part-time in Heathdale, primary. But Kirby, I use him as an example because he is someone that if you scratch him, he bleeds Bible. He really does. Uh, he's mentored me now for over a decade and, and he, he bleeds Bible. He, hasn't, he actually never went to formal theological Bible college, but he's been schooled in the school of the Bible for decades and it shows. He knows God's Word. He knows God's Word. But Ezra's captivation with God's word went deeper than just getting information and knowledge. Ezra's captivation with God's word is, I just don't want to know God's word. He committed himself to what? Doing it. Now, knowing can be easier than doing, yeah? You with me? Knowing what you should do, knowing about God, knowing about his commands, how he wants us to live in the world, and actually doing it, it can be hard. It can be easy to be on Sunday learning about God's Word and then Monday trying to put it into practice in a different environment. It's like, oh, it's hard. And, and knowledge by itself can actually be dangerous. Uh, the Bible speaks about knowledge puff, puffing up, potentially, making a bigger, more inflated view of yourself because you know a lot about God. Maybe because you've been a long time studying the Bible and learning it. You might even, like me, be able to read Hebrew and Greek. Wow, that means you really know the Word of God. But you know what? As good as those things are, if we don't put them into practice, they're actually, in some ways, bad things. Because we know more stuff, but if we're not doing what we know, then we're actually just increasing our judgment. We have more information than we're not doing. And you say, well, but knowing God is what really matters. And I say, no, it's not. And how do I know this? Because who knows God's word, I think, better than any of us here today? The devil. <laughs> I can make that argument for you in Scripture. Because 
The devil knows God's Word. He, he quotes God's Word. When you see him relating in the New Testament, he comes to Jesus with God's Word, and he quotes it, obscure bits of it, to make his points. He, he knows God's Word, but is the devil doing God's Word? Of course not. The point is that if you just know God's Word and you don't do it, you're actually not achieving anything of value, because the devil does it. And, and Jesus, I think that's why when, when he, he, uh, he speaks about this in John chapter 14, uh, three times he actually says these words in different ways. He says, if you love me, what? You will do what I command you. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You, you not only just love me by knowing me in the Word and by studying it diligently, by soaking it in on Sundays and gospel communities and podcasts and in talking to one another, you'll be seeking to do it, which is why application is so hugely important, isn't it? On Sunday, I could just give you all of the, uh, you know, I could give you the historical background of Ezra and maybe I could make it interesting and we would learn about the Persian Empire and we could learn about this and that and, and at the end of the day, I go, wow, that was a fantastic history lesson. And I know a lot about the Persian Empire in the time of Ezra and Jerusalem and, and we could talk about archaeology in Jerusalem and you, you'd learn a lot of stuff. But what really matters is the application of God's Word. What, 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 how is it going to change you this week? How is sitting here in this place and sitting under God's Word going to change the way you relate to your boss or to your employee or to your parents or to the difficult person in your world on Monday? Ezra is not only knowing God's Word, he is doing God's Word. And now thirdly, the fact that he's captivated by God's Word leads him to have an urge to teach it. He devoted himself to teaching God's Word. Now, as an aside, this is in the New Testament is a qualification for a Christian pastor, is to know the Word, do the Word, teach the Word. It's part of every Christian pastor's job description. It has to be there, communicating the Word of God to the people of God, because I have zero authority outside of God's Word. Zero. I'm not going to come and give you like five tips on how to have a great marriage, they might be, I might be able to do a couple of helpful things, but that's not why I'm here. I'm here to teach God's Word to you, not to point to me, but to point to Him. It's His Word of authority, and that's got to be where we're centered. But it's not just a few of us who teach God's Word in settings like this. Uh, the Bible says, actually, most of you shouldn't even aspire to that, because those who do what I'm doing right now will be judged more harshly. Why? Because they have more knowledge, and they have a greater commitment to do it, and a greater, a greater responsibility before God in conveying it, which comes with a greater accountability. It's a scary thing. But this is interesting. Uh, most of us can probably point to a sermon that we remembered. Uh, I was at uh, Belgrave Heights at the men's convention over the weekend, and, um, and I shared in part of the moment 31 years ago when this amazing Scottish guy called Alistair Begg preached this sermon and for the first time, I understood the good news about Jesus. Profound impact on my life. Went up the front and, and became a Christian when I was 17. And, um, and so I was sharing this, and then uh, three other blokes were at that thing. And they said, I was there too. That was when I became a Christian. That was amazing. There was 30 of us up the front, and, and you, you, I, I didn't remember them. They didn't remember me. But, but we, we, yeah, that was the moment. Now, hopefully, all of us here can think of a moment when God's Word came powerfully to our lives through human lips, 
That's how it should be. But let me tell you, as good as that sermon was the night that I became a Christian, it wasn't the most important teaching in my life. Not by half. Where was the most important teaching in my life? Sitting on my mum's knee. That's where it was. Ten years plus. Sitting on her knees, sitting at her feet, watching my mother open God's word watching my mother underlining it, seeking to applying it, listening to her teach it to me in the everyday moments of life, that impacted me more than any sermon. And I suggest that if you're a Christian, it's likely that someone in your life taught you faithfully. Someone probably that no one else knows about. They taught you faithfully. Uh, My grandmother's 96 years old now. She also modeled how to know God's Word, love God's Word, teach God's Word. She's still teaching God's Word at, at 96. Um, she's got a, a, a Bible study of, of wild young things, mostly in their 80s, um, who, who, who gather <laughs> frequently in her house. And Mama, if, if you're listening to this, and you probably are, please forgive me for this, but um, I sometimes wonder if they're not doing the same study several uh, weeks in a row, but loving it more every time. I don't, I don't know. Sorry, Mama, if, that, if you're listening. But there's a commitment to teaching God's Word. Um, and I know, yeah, I just, I just, I, Peter Castle's not here because he's with the kids. I don't know if you know Peter, but I just love his example. You know, an older man showing up there teaching our kids about the beautiful relevance of Jesus Christ. That's the kind of teaching which we often don't see, but we're all called to do in different ways and which can have a profound impact. Captivated by God's word, knowing it doing it, teaching it. That's Ezra, and that's the hand of God on his life because that's the kind of man he is. First thing we see there. Now, now, second thing we see about Ezra. Not only is Ezra captivated by God's word, he's also confident in God's power. He's confident in God's power. Uh, he has what um, our lead pastor of City on a Hill, Guy Mason, likes to call gospel confidence. His confidence in the good news of Jesus and his power to bring it to pass. Now, how do we know Esther had gospel confidence? Well, in uh, chapter 7, verses 27, 28, he's got this exclamation. It's a prayer or a celebration. Let me read it to you. He says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage For the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. So Ezra's reflecting back and he says, I took courage. Why did he take courage? Because he didn't have it and he needed it, so he took it. And what is he talking about? He's talking about the fact that Ezra, this man who the hand of God was on, had the courage and the boldness and the confidence in God to do what he says he'll do, that he goes before the Persian king. And we go, oh, big deal. And you just go before the the Persian king. The Persian king was a despot. Total power. You caught him on a bad day, and that was it. And Ezra takes courage, because he knows that what he's doing is very dangerous and difficult. And he goes before the king, and in chapter 8... If, you, if you've read that yourself, you'll read what he asks of the king, and it's extravagantly bold. He says, I want to go back 
to Jerusalem. I want to be able to take tons of people with me to Jerusalem. I want the permission to keep going on the temple and get that building going again. He says, I want the ability to take lots of money with me, um, and I want the power when I get there to actually have a real influence over the land. And then he says, and I want you to pay for all of it. (laughs) That's what he does. Read it. I mean, it's equivalent, he basically asks the king of Persia for what in today's currency would be billions of dollars from the, from the taxpayer's purse to fund what God is doing in the land of Israel, restoring his people, rebuilding them. That takes boldness. That takes a confidence in God's word. And Ezra is not, you know, he's not, he, he's scared. He's afraid when he goes before the king. He's afraid. Have you ever been in a situation where you've gone into powerful authority figures, not like the Persian emperor, but you've, you've been in those situations. You know your heart's beating. You're, you're thinking, this is risky business, I'm afraid. Ezra has confidence in God to do what he said, in God's power. So he takes action. He does something. And then when he's been given permission to do it, he goes, let's make it happen. We're going to take thousands of people, 2,700 kilometers back across a land which is largely desert. We're going to t- it's going to take us four months, and we're going to get there. Huge confidence in God's power. Now, you want to have God's hand on your life? Have confidence in His power. You know, sometimes Christians say to me, Ah, oh, my faith has got dry and boring. And I'm like, have you got skin in the game? You know, it's like someone who goes, oh, my investments are not growing. You say, well, how much have you got invested? Nothing. Oh, so it's not growing? Your nothing is not growing? That's, what a surprise. And sometimes with us as Christians, we can go like, why, why is my life as a Christian boring? He says, I haven't got skin in the game. I haven't got confidence in God's power. I'm not doing anything. I'm not asking anything big of him and taking some risks. And so my life is mundane and predictable. And, I did, you know, and why is God not speaking? Why is his hand not on me? Because I'm not doing what he tells me to do. I'm not stepping out in faith, in gospel confidence. Now, let me introduce you to Stan. I think I got a picture of him. I met Stan last week in Townsville. As a, um, a really good friend of mine from Army Days, uh, her husband is the pastor of uh, a church up in Townsville. They've been bugging me for ages to come up and preach at him with them um, at a church camp. I did it, immensely encouraging, and I met Stan. Stan is 89 years old, and, um, and I, had a, I had a chat to Stan. He, he was in, the, in the, the, uh, the, the sessions I was doing, he would, he would have his walker, you can see his walker there, and he'd have his little Bible resting on the front, and he'd, be, he'd have his Bible reading. I was like, oh, he's a really committed guy. And I came and had a chat to him out of interest, and, and um, I just thought, you know, it's a lovely old, old, old guy. And um, afterwards, the pastor said, oh, you met Stan. I went, yeah. I said, do you know Stan's story? I went, no. He said, let me tell you Stan's story. So Stan is 82 years old at this point. So now he's 89, but then he was 82. And uh, Stan was part of his local Baptist church in, in Townsville. And the church, had, like our church, it had a vision for planting churches. And uh, the church had a, a meeting of those people who were most interested. And the lead pastor was explaining why they couldn't plant another church, as the goal for the church had been. And, um, and Stan stuck his hand up and said, why not? And the lead pastor said, well, we haven't got a planter. Got no one who's willing to do it. And you might see where this is going. Stan goes, I'll do it. (laughs) And the pastor goes, Stan, 
you've been in, you're 82 years old. Church planning is a young man's game. It's going to be demanding. It's going to be difficult. You're in retirement. No, Stan. And Stan stuck his hand up again and said, I'll do it. And I don't know all the mechanics of this, but in the end, the decision was made, okay, Stan, you do it. And, uh, and so Stan went around and got a whole bunch of people, they're all retirees like him, and uh, they, they went out from the home church and, the, and they, they started a new church in a different suburb of Townsville called Fairfield, and Stan led it for two years until literally, as the pastor said, he was running out of puff. Yeah, like he was, he was hard. So he handed over to the new pastor. When he handed over two years later, this is phenomenal, that church had started to boom. The initial group of 20 or 30 people was now several hundred. Um, they, had, they bought a building, which, which I got to see. It's an amazing building. It was the, it was the home of the, um, the Townsville's MBL team before it went bankrupt. So it had like huge basketball court and all these Bought it for $850,000, no debt. Two years later. So my, friend, my friend's husband became the new pastor of that church. And since then, it is totally and utterly boomed. Why? Well, under, humanly speaking, because Stan had confidence in God's power. Stan stepped out into the unknown and he took some risks. He put some skin in the game again, as he'd been doing his whole life, and God blessed it extraordinarily. I should say, um, when, just as I was leaving, there was a doctor in that church and she said to me, I saw you speaking to Stan, you know he's dying. I went, no, he's got maybe a month, two months, three months. That's not a sad thing. <laughs> like Stan's going out strong. He's got confidence in his God and he's, he's going right to the very end. Forget the caravan and, and the grey nomad thing. Not that that's bad, but Stan's going, I want the hand of God on my life right to the very end. It's inspirational. That's why I got the photo with him there. The yellow thing, it was just something. That's not my normal attire, by the way. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. Now, finally... Ezra is a man committed to God's discipline. He's, he's, con, he's captivated by the word of God. Ezra is um, convicted of, or he's convinced, confident of its power. And now he's committed to God's discipline. Now, what do I mean by disciplines? I mean by disciplines the tools that God has given to each of us in the Scriptures and uh, through the wisdom of His church to help us grow in our faith and trust in God, to help prepare us to have God's hand on us. What I mean by disciplines, I mean there's lots of them, but the ones that we see Ezra practice are the ones I want to look at, and they're the disciplines of fasting and prayer. And um, uh, we didn't have enough uh, space in our Bible reading to go forward, but I want to zoom forward to chapter 8. Uh, next chapter on, 21 to 23, I'll read it. I think it'll be on the screen. If you've got your Bibles there, you, you, you can follow along. 8, 21 to 23, this is what it says. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God and seek from Him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on their way, since we told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted, and we implored God, our God, for this, and he listened to our entreaty. 
So Ezra is this man of, of, of um, just captivation of God's word. He's, he's confident in God's power, but he, he's also committed to the disciplines that God gives him, to fasting and to prayer. And you say, why did, why did he need to, to fast and pray? Because if you read chapter 8, it's very clear why he needed to. Because what's happened is they've got this group of people who are going back to Israel um, to, to rebuild the temple and to, to rebuild God's community in the land. But notice he says, I, I was too scared to ask the king. Not too scared. He says, I couldn't. I was ashamed to ask the king for a military protection on the way. Because he's just told the king, God's God of everyone. And then he comes and says like, and uh, could you help me with some military protection on the way? And so Ezra goes, we can't do that. So he's at this river, Ahava. They're about to cross into the, the Badlands. It's going to take them four months on foot. They're going unarmed into these lands that are only lightly controlled and policed. And in chapter 8, it tells us what they're carrying. 24 tons of silver. Four tons of gold. All the money that the king's given them and they've collected to take back and get the show back on the road again in Jerusalem, no protection. Like, what is that asking for? Please have a great train robbery. Here we are, you know, like in the middle of nowhere with no protection and fabulous rich. Please come and rob and murder and kill all of us. And Ezra's, I think he's, the reality set in. He's looking across the river to the Badlands going, uh oh. Now it's actually happening. Help! <laughs> and what he's doing, he's committing himself to what God's told him to do, to, to the disciplines. Uh, Ezra's not going to be a man that's going to do the work of God in the, in the power of the flesh, as A.W. Tozer said. So many of us, he said, we do the work of the Spirit in the power of the flesh. Not Ezra. Ezra looks at what's before him, the hand of God is on him, and he gets on his knees and he gets the people on their knees and they pray to God for his help and his protection. Ezra says, I need help. It says, um, it says in the scripture that the hands of God rove to and fro, the eyes of God, sorry, rove to and fro across the world looking to strengthen the hearts of those who are fully committed to him. So the eyes of God are roving to and fro. Fasting and prayer is like a big help written on the beach as those eyes go over. Oh, or it's like that shining the mirror in the eye of God's eyes as they, as they help, you know, we're in trouble down here. Fasting and prayer is, is the, the disciplines of faith. And when we do them, God's hand and his power is safe to be released on us. Because if we are not disciplined in prayer and fasting, then very, very quickly we get inflated. And God's hand on our lives actually becomes, in some sense, a dangerous thing because it becomes all about us. We've all seen it. Maybe we've experienced it ourselves. Prayer and fasting keeps us grounded. And, and Ezra does it in a really wonderful way. And he sets that example. Now, what's your normal response to a moment of crisis? Um, I'll, I'll tell you mine. Uh, it happened, here's one example of many. Um, when the boys, uh, my two oldest boys, Ethan and Jonty, were eight years old and six years old, I decided that it would be a fabulous idea to take them whitewater rafting on the Goodrabangi River in the New South Wales high country. I mean, what could go wrong? And so um, we got our inflatable kayak and we set off into the white water with our gear. It was, we, the plan was we would go all day down the river and meet Dana at, a, at another point. And only about half an hour into this, our boat hit a big rock in the rapid. It punctured 
It started to go down, we capsized, and I found myself with two little boys and a sinking boat going down this white water stream, and I was suddenly hit me what I'd done, and the, the, here we were in a very dangerous situation. And uh, we're floating down the river, um, in and out of the rapids, and I'm trying to make sure we get the boat and the boys all at once together in the same place, and, um, and we managed it. Eventually, we pulled ourselves out of the white water, and we sat on the bank, and we're both freezing cold. We had no mobile signal. I didn't know we, where we were. Um, the boat was deflating fast, and, and I said, right, come on, boys, we've got to get a plan. We've got to get that boat fixed, and we've got to get it out of here. And Jonty, six years old, looked at me with his big wide eyes. He said, no, Dad. We need to kneel and give thanks to God for our deliverance. And then we need to pray that we make it home alive. And I went, in that moment, <laughs> this is, comp- you ask him when you see it, it was, it was a real moment. And, and I just went like, he's right. I've come up with my plan, you know, we're going to fix this, we're going to do that, and uh, or like army officer training, or like, what's the next steps, let's get the team together. And he's like, no, Dad, you, you got your priorities wrong. We're in trouble. And so there we are, the three of us kneeling on that deflating kayak, uh, play, praying to God for his deliverance. Now, we were actually fasting too, because all of our food went to the bottom of the river, but it wasn't <laughs> intentional, right? But prayer and fasting in that moment. Um, <laughs> yes, it's, but it's what it does. When we depend on God, when we pray and when we fast, and we, we put into practice the disciplines of our life that He gives us, we're then in a position to actually have the hand of God. Remember, the hand of God means His redemption, His saving work in the world, work through us in a way that's, that's good for us and, and it's safe. It's one of the reasons that as a church, we're committed monthly to coming and to praying. We're committed in seasons throughout the year of fasting before God as a church community. Because we, we can come up with the best plans and the best goals and the best ideas and the best new things that are going around in church life. And those, are, those are not always going to be bad. But as a community and as people, we need to get on our knees before God and ask for His help. Because without that, we have nothing. All right, let's conclude. We looked at Ezra, the mighty hand of God on his life. I asked at the start, what are your goals for your life? What are you living for? What are you you giving your energy and your time towards? What's important to you? Having the hand of God on your life. There is nothing more important than that. There's nothing more important that will endure. There's nothing more more valuable, and there's no other valuable way of spending a life but to have God's hand on you as He works out His purposes for salvation and redemption in the world. That lasts. That satisfies. That's worth it. I remember when I was 18 years old, I was walking one night on a beach and I was praying and I didn't get an audible voice, but I just had an overwhelming sense that God was saying to me, all right, your life is ahead of you. You've, you've got some choices to make. You know me. And one choice that you can make is to live safe and comfortable. To be faithful to me, but, but to live safe and comfortable. And, you know, I saw like suburbia and it says, or the other choice that you have 
is to put that kayak into the white water, let go of the paddles and then see where you go. Trust me. Trust me. And in that moment, I, I was wrestling because it's very attractive, isn't it, to just to, to go more for the safe option, to say, yep, I'm, I'm worshipping you, God, and I'm, when I die, I'm going to go to heaven, but I don't have to be too serious about it in some ways. I'll just go through and, you know, or casting yourself into the hand of God. Letting him say, my hand is going to be upon you. And I chose that second one. And I think that most of us, if you're a Christian here, you did as well. You want God's hand on your life. But the reality is, if your experience is like mine, it's very easy then to go, okay, I've had the hand of God on my life, but now I'm kind of moving over this way. It's more comfortable. You know, I'm not going to trust in God's power like I once did. I'm not captivated in God's word like I once was. I'm not committed to God's discipline like I used to be. It's very easy to drift. I think God's word to us this morning says, we need, you need, I need the hand of God. God's hand to be with me in his salvation and redeeming work in his world. That's worth it. That's not. And so as we close our time together, I'm, if, if your heart is like my heart, you need encouragement in that. And if this morning you feel, yeah, I am, I have been drifting. I've been going through the motions. I haven't got the skin in the game that I once had. I'm not investing what I once did. Or maybe I've never had skin in the game and I've never invested, but it's time because I want something significant for my life. I want the hand of God. Then in this moment, I'm going to ask you to stand. And I'm already standing, so that's fine with me because I was going to stand myself. And then what I'm going to do is just going to ask that, that those of us who stand, the rest of us would just pray. Pray that God's hand would be on these men and these women who stand in a new and a fresh and a wonderful way. Can we do that? We're a family. We can pray for one another. This is an opportunity. If you want that prayer, just stand up with me right now, and then the rest of us are going to pray for you. Isn't that awesome? Don't we want that? And, and these moments are, are not just token. The moments when we respond to God's Word in our heart, and we, we admit, we long for more, he, he loves that. He uses that. He puts his hand on that. So, brothers and sisters, thank you for, for standing with me. I'm going to pray for us. And if you're seating, please, please pray for these men and women you can see around you. Let's pray. Musicians, come up, and then we can continue to worship at the end. Uh, Lord God, we, we come before you this morning, and we're desperate for your hand on our lives. Lord, these men and women standing, they want their lives to matter. They want your hand to be on them now and, and through the days ahead so that in the end of time when, when the siren sounds and they walk off the field and they meet you, it'll be clear to everyone that your hand has been on them, that they have fought your battles, that they have served you, and are now receiving the reward that comes with that. 
And so, Lord, I pray for these men and women now that the power of the Holy Spirit would fall on them. I pray, Lord, that uh, their eyes would be fixed on you, on your big vision in a new and wonderful way. Lord, that the hand of God would rest on these people, on me and on all of us who long to press in more to you. We pray, Lord, this would be true of our church, but we pray especially for these men and women standing now. You see them, Lord. Strengthen them and empower them for your glory's sake. Help them to be captivated by your word. Help them to be confident in your power. Help them, Lord, we pray, to run out the race to the very end, committed to the disciplines you call them to. And we pray all of these things in confidence and in faith in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.